Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on all things ophthalmology brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Dr. Andrea Tooley. And I'm Dr. Eric Bothan. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest in ophthalmology, medicine, and more. Dr. Mike Marr is an Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at Mayo Clinic. Today we'll talk about his experience in and research of the light-adjustable intraocular lens. Dr. Marr will share how this new technology has changed his surgical practice and the vision of patients at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Mike Marr is an Associate Professor at the Mayo Clinic. He is not only known as a very gifted cataract surgeon, but an educator and thought leader regarding surgical outcomes, quality initiatives, and big data analysis. And we're excited to sit down with him today and talk about some new initiatives, or one in particular, involving intraocular lenses and cataract surgery. Welcome, Dr. Marr. Thanks a lot. Really great to be here. For me, I have a a particular interest in this topic as I enjoy pediatric cataract surgery, and our biggest challenge in peds is the optical growth and targeting to get best outcomes. And what we're here today is to talk about a lens that, at least in adults, are proving promise to or uh, to improve our outcomes in that category. So I just wanted to just stop and, before we get into the light-adjusted lens, ask you to talk about your background, how you got here, and your interest in what fuels you in cataract surgery. Well, thank you. To make a long story short, basically, it's as simple as I really fell in love with cataract surgery when I was a chief resident. And when that happened, it turns out, if you told me then you have to do a five-year fellowship to do cataract surgery, I actually would have done it. It turns out that's not the way it worked really back then. And so I was lucky enough when I finished my training to be able to stay on staff here and really kind of the, the rest is history. But I mean, you're selling yourself short a little because I, having trained with you, you're an amazing educator, but you are the cataract ninja. I mean, you're a phenomenal cataract surgeon and also a numbers guy. Like you are a, a very analytical, numbers guy. You like big data, you like outcomes, you like finance. You're really into lens calcs. You know, this, this whole thing I feel like just really suits you. Like this is what you were made for. That's the kindest way anybody's told me. I'm basically a data nerd. <laughs> <laughs> a great data nerd. But it's true. Guilty as charged. So how, how has your career kind of evolved as a cataract surgeon, seeing the technology progress so much, and then to get you to this point of kind of diving into the light adjustable lens? Well, I think that's the beauty of ophthalmology, and I think that's what attracts a lot of us to ophthalmology in our various niches, is the, the technology and progress we've seen, even over the last 20 years, and you can even prognosticate for the next group of people, it's going to be pretty amazing going forward, and it reminds me, Mayo, we have an amazing policy where you get to go to meetings and travel a lot. And when I started on staff in 2001, the first meeting I went to in Europe, they actually mentioned this amazing technology where you were going to be able to adjust the lens implant while it was in a patient's eye. And that almost took me out of my seat. I looked at it and they explained how they would do that. And it almost borderlined on unbelievable Star Trek. Like, is that really possible to do that in a precise manner? That's 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And here we are, it's actually possible. How long have you been using this new technology? And tell us a little bit about your outcomes, because obviously, knowing you as a cataract ninja, um, (laughs) I know your outcomes were high before, but how long have you been using it? And what's been your reflection on how it's changing your practice and outcomes? So we've had it at Mayo Rochester for about a year and a half, and, and it's been FDA approved for just a hair longer than the U.S. So in the U.S., not many people outside of trials have used it much longer than that. 
it's hard, as you mentioned, the reality is we've benefited over the last years from all the advances in IOL technology, IOL measurements, where as a baseline, our patients do pretty darn well. So that's where you start out. Now this technology, though, it adds a little something extra, and the little something extra it adds is a couple things. It is one, you really can precisely fine tune the final refractive error, because we're very good, but we're, we're not perfect. And there's certain patients where we're less likely to be perfect, the person with a history of refractive surgery, for example. But the other thing that's pretty unique is that for patients that want to see well at distance and near, you really, before this lens implant, have fairly limited options. You can go with a multifocal lens implant, and that has the potential issues with contrast sensitivity, higher order aberrations, glare and halos. Or you can do monovision, but to do monovision, you have to have done it before and know you love it. And once we do with cataract surgery, with a traditional monofocal lens implant, you're stuck with that. That's what you get. This is the first time you can actually test drive monovision in the post-op period. Try a little bit through the adjustment process. If you like it, you can do a little more. If you don't like it, you can actually undo it. And for some patients, that's really a game changer because they're very interested in it, but they don't necessarily want to commit to something where they don't know whether they're going to like it or not. And so with the light adjustable lens implant, we find about 75, 80% of the patients end up doing some level of monovision. And that level is actually titrated to the patient. It's a little different for everybody. And that makes it pretty unique. Hmm. Would you, for a cataract novice like me, just back up a tiny bit and tell us how it works? And then what are the rules? What are the confines with, within which we have to play? Important point. And so the one thing you have to say right away is, this brings a lot to the table, but then it takes something already that's fairly complex and it actually makes it more complex. The cataract surgery itself, if you think about what technically happens, it's the same as traditional cataract surgery with one exception. You're putting in a different lens implant. The lens implant though, it's a three-piece lens implant, not a one-piece lens implant. So the reality of it, it's trickier to put in than a traditional lens implant. There's probably a higher chance of complications with putting this lens implant in if you don't make sure you're technically proficient at doing it. So you can't just assume that it's the same as what we're doing right now. That having been said, once you're done putting the lens implant in, the post-op process is very similar to what you would traditionally do with the exception that a few weeks after surgery, we see patients in clinic and then we do very, very, very precise refractions because everything hinges on the refraction. Mm -hmm. We do these refractions, we find the residual refractive error, we determine what the target is we want, and then we use a fancy light delivery device that looks like it's on a slit lamp, basically. Hold a lens on the eye that looks like a lens you'd use for a YAG capsulotomy and do this two-minute light adjustment to the eye. And then over the next day or so, that lens shape change takes place and the patients often have that wow experience. You can do up to three adjustments. Once the adjustments are done, you have to do what's called lock in the lens implant. So you shine light on the whole lens implant and basically make it unadjustable. Mm -hmm. This whole time between surgery and when we did the adjustments, the patients have to wear special UV protecting glasses because the lens implant is sensitive to UV light, a specific wavelength, just 365 nanometers, very precise. But you don't want unintended, basically, unintentional adjustments happening out in the wild. Once this lock-in treatment's done, though, they stop wearing those glasses. And then from that patient's point of view, they're like anybody else with a three-piece silicone lens implant in the eye that is now unadjustable. That is so cool. How much can you adjust? 
Great question. And which range? You know, myopic, hyperopic, yeah. toric? Which way can you go? So the FDA labeling for the lens is you can do plus or minus two diopters of sphere, and on top of that, plus or minus two diopters of cylinder. But mm. these are additive. So for example, if you have a patient where you're not going to do any spherical adjustment, you can potentially do a little bit more cylinder more adjustment. So. And you can go in both directions for the same patient. So we can make you more nearsighted. You don't like monovision. We can actually adjust you back. They're basically macromers in the lens that are responsive to this UV light. And you can keep adjusting until you run out of macromers. And when you put them in, do you err on one side or another more commonly than you would say in a normal IOL placement? That's a great question. So traditionally in cataract surgery, we have this bias to, towards making you a little myopic. Mm -hmm. So we don't waste any of your depth of field on the hyperopic side. This lens implant, on the other hand, because of the technical nature of the lens, we actually err on the side of making you plano or slightly hyperopic when we put the lens implant in. Because if we want to adjust you, we'd actually like to adjust you a little bit more, doing a little bit more plus adjustment. Because what that does is we actually create negative spherical aberrations on the lens and create a higher depth of field for patients. Mm. So what's interesting is with this lens implant, what you find is, is for traditional contact lens monovision, a patient would be happy, let's say, is a minus 2 or a minus 2.25. Mm -hmm. With this lens implant, the data is very clear. Patients usually settle in about a minus 1.25, minus 1.5. So the question is, why is that? Yeah. And that is because there's negative spherical aberrations in the lens. But when we do the adjustments, there's certain technical parameters where if you adjust in a certain direction, you actually increase the negative spherical aberration. But that's a good thing. We, we create more depth of field. And it turns out we're not creating glare halos issues with contrast sensitivity, which is always that fine line you have to walk. It's so interesting. When you're thinking about ideal patients and selecting patient type for these lenses, you made such a great point thinking maybe this is really good for a post-refractive surgery patient or somebody where you're targeting IOL is going to be more difficult. Are there other considerations where you think you're a great candidate, you're not a great candidate, or is it kind of open to all comers? It's a great question. So maybe I can invert the question. You could say, well, you know what? If you have nice spherical corneas with no astigmatism, we great, get great lens power measurements, and you just want to be distance plano, with our traditional surgery and our traditional lens implant power measurements, there's a pretty decent probability you're going to do pretty well. Mm -hmm. If you take the other end of the continuum, you have a history of refractive surgery. Let's say if you have regular astigmatism in your cornea that you want treated as well, and you want to test drive monovision. Well, now you start to have a lot of the pluses where you'd potentially benefit from the lens implant. So I think different people have potential to benefit more or less depending either on their innate situation and their goals too. And what's interesting with the stigmatism outcomes, we're actually pretty spoiled already. We have limbal relaxing incisions. We have the torque lens implant, which is pretty amazing. But when you look at the data, for torque lens implants, for example, about one out of 10, one out of six patients end up worse than 20, 30 uncorrected. Mm. With the light adjustable lens implant, when you correct, there's still astigmatism. That same number is one out of 100. Much better. So speak to that a little bit more. You've been doing it for a year and a half, you said. Have Looking back, I know you've looked, because you're a data analytical mm -hmm. guy, what has been the reflection over those outcomes? You just spoke to one on astigmatism, but you know, for yes, you're going to have patients that are going to be a higher success or a rate in cataract surgery anyway. On the street now, what has been your practice and how much has it changed patients' outcomes? So our results are pretty neat. I'm going to give you the specifics, but I have to qualify them. So our traditional pool of cataract surgery patients in the adult population has a lot of patients who have other issues that limit their vision potential. 
as a rule, the patients we've done the light adjustable lens implant on so far, we've selected out those patients. We're really offering this to patients who stand to kind of achieve the full benefit. So mm -hmm. it's hard to do a straight there's up a comparison because there's with. obviously a selection bias. So take that as the caveat. The patients we're using this lens implant on up until now have potential to see well. So what's happened? For the distance eyes, we actually find the majority of our patients are actually 2015. All of them are 2015 or 2020 uncorrected. What about intermediate vision? They're actually all 2020 or better intermediate. Near vision's different because near vision, they're telling us what they want. So we, we have a very high percent of the patients. They're kind of comparable to 2020 vision near. We also find some patients will bring them up close for near vision. They said, you know what, I don't want that. I want you to go ahead and set both eyes for distance and I'll wear my readers. Mm -hmm. So what we learned from that is what was advertised and what was presented as possible that we can actually do these precise adjustments on the lens implant. We all looked at that and thought, is this really mm -hmm. possible? It turns out that actually is possible and that piece actually works. It also puts more responsibility on us too because as we get more precise, and more demanding, it kind of unmasks other minor issues. So for example, if you have a patient and you're trying to go from 2020 to 2015, just that little bit of dry eye or surface disease, all these other things, which used to maybe be a rounding error, now matter. So it, it changes the game a little bit, I would say. Does it change patient expectations? Because I would assume some of the piece of the, you're, you're putting even more money in, which you can clarify how much it is these days, yeah. into your cataract surgery, and the already maybe potentially highly expectant patient population after prior re refractive surgery. So tell us about the patient consent and discussion time. You bet. Your, your intuition is right on the money. I mean, there's a selection bias for people who want this lens implant where they, they expect a lot. And then they also see the information and so forth, and they may have their own interpretation of that, but their own interpretation of it is also expecting kind of amazing results. It's expensive too. So traditional out-of-pocket for this lens implant, the national data is it's over $4,000 per eye out-of-pocket in addition to whatever the other costs of cataract surgery would be. And that certainly facilitates higher expectations too. So it creates a lot of demands ahead of time and we already have these demands, I think, with traditional cataract surgery to be very clear what's possible, what's not possible, what the things would be that might keep someone from getting where they think they want to get. And you mentioned before in terms of patient selection, the main thing that keeps patients from being able to get this lens implant is their pupil size. So to do the adjustments, you have to be able to see the whole lens. And the lens is a six millimeter optic. Really only five millimeters of the optic is adjustable. So the reality is in clinic, you need them to dilate to at least six millimeters so you can hit the whole lens and not leave part of the lens basically unadjusted. So if you look at the patients who, we, who wanted this, who we haven't been able to give it to, by far the number one exclusion criteria is inability to dilate to an adequate size. Hmm, that's fascinating. I wanted to ask too, you mentioned about close to 80% are choosing some level of monovision, which seems really high. And these are patients who have not trialed monovision before, they haven't had a contact lens trial, but that's what they're kind of tending toward. So I think that in itself is interesting, but is that changing your perspective on how you counsel routine cataract patients thinking, Maybe this is what more patients actually want. For sure, you know, as in my own career, as, as I've kind of evolved with cataract surgery, I think there's been more of a bias towards 
picking a more myopic target for patients. Mm -hmm. And if you looked at our targets, irrespective of what we achieve over the last decade or two decades, they seem to be shifting in that direction, both a little bit for the distance eye, but but then also to create versions of kind of mini monovision for, for a second near eye. And the question is, is, you know, did we not have it figured out correctly before? Is the world changing and people want more of that now? But, but it's pretty clear, like you very insightfully said, that when you give people the chance to actually pick after the fact, you'll learn a lot, and people want some of that is what it, is what it turns but out to be. do you know that? So, I mean, I guess there are 80% are asking for monovision after. How many of them had monovision before? Because if they were... It's not something we track, just sure. but intuitively sure. from seeing the patients. There's definitely a percent of the patients that's done monovision before, but that's the minority. The majority of those patients, they weren't doing monovision ahead of time. And some try it and do fail it, where they say, you know what, this isn't what I want, but it's a minority. And our data kind of lines up with the national data, too, in terms of what percent are settling in with with some version of that monovision. So to me, the interesting question would be, from a patient perspective, let's say you have visually significant cataract, you've got money to burn, and you're willing to pay for whatever to be free of glasses. Do you choose a multifocal, which have great outcomes, and and can, I mean, really, I think, can get you good vision at lots of distances, or do you go for the light adjustable and then probably end up doing some kind of monovision? And how do you know, and how do you make that decision? That's the hard thing for our patients, and it will be for all of us one day, too, because we're gonna have to decide Mm -hmm. for ourselves what, what do we want. The multifocal, for sure, there are issues with glare, halos, contrast, sensitivity. The problem is we have no good way ahead of time to figure out, are Ooh, you going to have the yeah. issues or are you not going to have the issues? So that's a problem. It's this abstract thing. If you're the one who has the issues, it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. When you look at trial data from kind of a major multifocal lens implant compared to the light adjustable lens out implant, it turns out they both do pretty well at distance, but twice as many of the light adjustable lens implant patients have 20-20 near vision versus the versus the multifocal. Mm. Why is that? You know, it, you have to be careful because when you look at any data looking at near vision, you can always kind of adjust how you do things by picking, for example, more myopic targets with your seeing with some of the enhanced depth of field lenses and so forth that make that number look better, but, but you're actually paying the price at distance a bit too. But at the end of the day, they're tough decisions for patients. One thing that, that maybe shouldn't be minimized though, is when you do traditional cataract surgery, we do your surgery, we see you immediately post-op and we see you a month later and you're done. That's it typically, mm-hmm. unless mm-hmm. there's an issue. With the light adjustable lens implant, we're gonna see a lot more and we're gonna see a lot more typically over a two month time period. We'll probably see you five times. Some patients who have dry eyes, we bring you in and do the refraction. You know what? We're not comfortable that we have a good stable refraction. We're not gonna use one of those adjustments. We're actually gonna send you home and bring you back and do it all over again. Hmm. So for sure, even if you forget about money, it's a much more time intensive process where you're gonna wait a bit longer to get to where you ultimately wanna be. And and that's not for everybody, Mm -hmm. for sure. It's a commitment. How about long-term stability? So in the US, we don't really know. We haven't been using that long. Now it turns out there's data out of Europe for I want to say this says four to five hundred patients, it shows refractive stability at, at, at seven to eight years is the time window, and it kind of makes sense because once you lock it in, it's just a silicone lens implant. It just happens to have its shape customized for your eye, so so it's not a surprise that they're pretty stable. I wonder if ophthalmologists are going to dive into this. I mean, I feel like it's refractive cool. surgery 
is something that is such a attractive thing for so many patients. But I think a lot of ophthalmologists, knowing the risks involved, right. don't go there. And they and also I think ophthalmologists are the one group of people that love optics the most. Mm-hmm. So if we're bothered by contacts or glasses, you know, that's that's our profession is administering contacts or glasses. But we're also big into optics, lasers and cool technologies. And I just wonder if this is that you know, an optical choice mm-hmm. that has right. less risk, potentially with equal or higher reward, using our, you know, these technologies in a way that um, are revolutionizing and stepping us closer and closer to what we are trying to achieve for our patients. So I, I'm excited for, even though refractive surgery, I don't think really was is probably bought into by ophthalmologists as much. I certainly wonder if me as an ophthalmologist, or if I as an author, we'll, we'll be interested in um, in a multi or in a, in a light adjusted lens someday. Mm-hmm. It's funny you say that because non data speaking, it sure seems like the patients who are interested in the light adjustable lens implant have this bias towards people who are technically savvy, engineer type, very interested, and they really get a kick out of the whole thing. And they sure di- they dive into the technology. Some of them probably understand it better than I do. So you're right. There may be people just based on what attracts them from kind of a data technology point of view where they're drawn to this simply for that reason. Mm-hmm. It does seem that at least right now with this being such an early tech, it's very niche. It's really only available to a small percentage of very affluent patients who are likely well-educated and understand the technology. You know, Do you think that they're is an opportunity for this tech to evolve to be more globally available, or is this always going to be like the top tier, very small kind of luxe luxury cataract surgery option? In its current form, it's still a much more resource intensive thing. There's mm-hmm. no question about it in terms of the number of visits, the intensity of the visits, and so forth. And, and it, that intensity, I think will for sure be something that's not for everybody. It's not just because of money. There are a lot of people, they just don't want to do all that. Right. And so, yes, will this lens implant in its current form ever be 50% of the lens implants in the U.S.? I I doubt it Mm -hmm. for for those reasons. I don't know that, but, but I doubt it. Which begs the question, well, what is it now, right? So it's hard to know. If you had to guess in the U.S. now, let's say there are 3 million cataract surgeries in here, big picture. This lens implant, when it rolled out, so last year, so 2022, the annualized rate of putting those lens implants in at the beginning of the year was about 25,000 lens implants. Now it's up to around 40,000. So it's one point something percent of the cataract surgeries in the US. So even though the volume for that lens implant has gone up quite a bit, it's still a very, very small percentage of the total. To do the lens implant, you don't need anything special in the operating room, but you have to be able to do the adjustments, and you need that special light delivery device. As a practice, that device costs $120,000, $125,000. In the U.S., at the beginning of this year, I think there were 400-something, let's say around 500 devices. So there are 500 places you could go to do this. But it's not something that's going to be everywhere, Mm -hmm. because for somebody to offer it, you have to get some critical volume of this, I think, for it to make sense. That actually doesn't seem like that expensive when you think of all the overhead as an ophthalmologist and all the tech that you're investing in for your practice. And if you're charging an extra 4K a lens, that seems like it'd probably pay for itself pretty quickly. Is there a cost per 
button push like there is with some of the old school LASIK machines. You, you know, you would have to pay a, a royalty to the company every time you use the device, even if you buy the device. Mm-hmm. There's no click fee. The click fee, that's the t- term. <laughs> On the other hand, you say the click fee is indirect. The click fee is the cost of the lens implant. So the practice or the surgery center gets a th- charged $1,000 lens implant okay. so so maybe it shows up that way is, is, is the way one would think about that it seems like it could potentially be adoptable that, that that barrier to entry doesn't seem that much but it does seem time intense resource intense for the patient side of things yeah, yeah it's interesting because like you like you said for the practice kind of the headline number that comes up is that light delivery device that doesn't seem so bad yeah. the real cost is hidden hard to measure because that routine where you have all these extra post-op visits that's a and lot this isn't a, a normal auto refraction, get the refraction done. If the glasses aren't right, we'll make remake the glasses. Yeah. This is, you better be triple sure that this is exactly what you want because that adjustment is gonna be based on that refraction. So that's the real cost. And w- what does that cost? That's a, a more challenging question, but, but, but it's significantly different well, than the it, traditional routine. Mm-hmm. And not only that, it's the, the, the time and volume and energy towards other patients you could have put forth generating other income and other productivity other ways. So yeah, right. it's definitely a, you know, a, a cost and benefit that you had to assess as a practice and as a patient that way. For sure. It'd be an interesting business model if you were co-managing. I, I just am starting to think of the opportunities there. I'll be very interested to see where this technology takes us in the future. I don't have personal familiarity with those. But there are practice models where surgeons do the surgery and there's an adjustment center you go to yeah. to do all the adjustments. Right. And that, that certainly would, would be a game changer that tracks, in, in yeah. some ways. But but th- that exists. How successful it is, what the issues are with that, I, I'm just not personally familiar with. But, but, but your idea is interesting because I think it's happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you've been on, and at least for our department, the forefront of taking a cataract service that's already highly successful and using this in a niche way in a, in a in an expanding way for patients where is this going what do you see in the horizon of what this introduces in concepts for adults i even know for myself as a pediatric cataract surgeon where might this go and what options do you dream about for this technology it's a neat thing because it's a neat thing there are patients we discuss this with who end up saying you know what this isn't for me for for whatever reason but I do find that patients, they like options and that sometimes makes them more comfortable with what they pick, even if it's what you would consider a more traditional monofocal lens implant because they thought through these different things and they settled in for kind of what's right for them as opposed to just being this thing that happens to them. There's talk and it's something beyond what I understand that the way this lens implant adjusts is those macromers are reactive to 365 nanometer light. Well, why does that matter? That occurs in nature. There's talk that that lens implant could potentially be designed where you would require two simultaneous hits of light of wavelengths, including wavelength that maybe doesn't occur normally in the environment. So why does that matter? You could potentially, if that were the case, if it could be made that way, you could make it to where the lens implant never has to be locked in. There's where it's useful for pediatric. Mm -hmm. So is that really possible? May that happen? I don't know. I mean, I'm certainly not able to assess that. But if something like that were to happen, that would be a huge game changer. Because even if you didn't need it to be adjusted, I think all of us would say, having a lens implant or eye that we can adjust at any point in time in the future, that, that, that changes the equation a little bit. So that's kind of the, the dreamy maybe future. Yeah. That would be a big, big opportunity. 
I like that idea. <laughs> yeah, children, I mean, from an infantile stage, they can shift 12 diopters or even more until adulthood. But even when you get to a teenage eyes that you think are stable, the you know, data would suggest they change at least a diopter, even two. So the, the targeted refractions do change. And as you know, there are adults even that will have reasons why their refraction can change. So that would certainly be a new platform that would you know, expand horizons and improve outcomes. Yeah. yeah, and the old version of me would, would, would be skeptical about all this, but then if you think back, I would never seen this coming 20 years ago, right. so we have to be pretty open-minded, I would say. Technology and ophthalmology, it's one of the best parts. I think we're all drawn to the tech nature of opto. It's, it's so cool. It, I love that we're early adopters here of this technique. I love that you're pioneering it and, and doing great research and putting out your outcomes, so that's awesome. It, it's it's fun to hear about these cool new things we're doing. I, it just made me think, you know, this week they did the first eyeball transplant. Did you guys hear about this? Mm -hmm. Which is a non-seeing eye, but still, you you think about the possibilities and and what we could maybe do in the future. And we haven't stopped innovating. It's very exciting. Thank you for coming and shedding light on your practice uh, on light-adjusted lenses. Really appreciate being here. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Mar. You can find all episodes of the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on our website. Thank you for listening, and we definitely look forward to sharing more.